This is episode 157 of That Shakespeare Life. Today's episode is brought to you by Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare is the membership arm of That Shakespeare Life that offers you monthly digital history activity kits that let you try at home the history you learn about on the show. They work like science labs for history. Stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm David Harabin, author, historian, and joint director of the British Archives of Falconry. Another great method for exploring the life of Shakespeare includes listening to this, It's That Shakespeare Life, with my friend Cassidy Cash. So they would point to the king, the aristocracy, they would point to the class of the gentry below that, they would point below that to yeomen and husbandmen and so on down the road to uh, landless labourers. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. As students of Shakespeare's lifetime, often we see the phrase, quote, of certain status to describe 16th to 17th century limitations on clothes, housing, and other material realities for various people. Particularly if you study Elizabethan sumptuary laws, it seems like society was strictly controlled based on social status, and one's place in society was decided at birth with little mobility allowed. The life of people like William Shakespeare, however, who in his own life was able to rise in the ranks of society and establish himself as a gentlemen, give us evidence that social mobility was a strong force in England for 16th and 17th centuries. One key place that contemporaries of William Shakespeare were able to show off their status and stake their claim to a certain place in social order was through the design and architecture of their homes and grand estates. Our guest this week, Matthew Johnson, is here to explain the social phenomenon of upward mobility, define the levels of society that were present for Shakespeare, and walk us through some of the key elements of grand houses and their architecture from the 1500s to 1600s that reveal where the lines were drawn between the classes for Elizabethan and Jacobean in England and how the attributes of their houses show off these distinctions. Matthew Johnson works on the archaeology and history of Europe and the Atlantic world. He has written six books on a range of themes, including castles, traditional houses, landscape, and an archaeology of capitalism. He is best known for his book, Archaeological Theory and Introduction, and is the author of English Houses 1300 to 1800 that he joins us to talk about today. Born in Austin, Texas, he is a dual U.S.-British citizen. Matthew has held visiting fellowships and positions at UC Berkeley, Heidelberg University, UCLA, Flinders University, University of Cambridge, and the University of Pennsylvania. After a PhD at Cambridge and posts at Sheffield, Durham, and Southampton, he returned across the Atlantic in 2011 to be professor and sometimes chair of anthropology at Northwestern University. Find out more about Matthew along with links to more of his work in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Matthew. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassie. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Moats are these large, deep holes filled with water and extending around the exterior wall of a large manor house are often portrayed on film as defensive fortresses. But 
put there to dissuade an enemy attack. Matthew's research indicates that by the 16th century, moats are still being installed on new structures like Hampton Court Palace, but they had long stopped being used as a strategic weapon. Matthew, why was it important in the 16th century for a large manor house or palace to have a moat if they were no longer for defense? Most of them for several reasons. Firstly, they are really important in terms of showing the property off. A a property that is reflected in water looks much bigger than one that has no such reflection. Secondly, the use of water is important, not just with moats, but the moats uh, fulfill several other functions in addition to aesthetic ones. They are often associated with mills and mill ponds, so they're important. So the water is an important power source. And, of course, they're also often linked up with fish ponds, and so uh, there's an important food resource there as well. So moats are really important precisely because they, they serve a variety of functions with the, within the English manor house. When it comes to indicating your place in society through architecture, towers were a popular choice in the 16th century. Matthew, how were the addition of towers or even the maintenance of towers left unused in any practical sense considered markers of social prominence? Of course, the best marker of social prominence you could possibly have would be to inherit or to to have an old house. And so they're partly important as markers of antiquity. By Shakespeare's time, by the end of the 16th century, people are deliberately building things in order to look old. A classic example is, is the Earl of Leicester's gatehouse at Kenworth Castle. And I know you've discussed Kenworth on a, on a previous podcast. So partly it's about looking old and looking ancient. But it's also about being able to survey the landscape. Don't forget that in the 16th century, along with towers, you also have long galleries. And these are galleries right at the top of a building, right at the top of a house, from which you would look out over your state. So they're also about surveillance. Matthew writes that, quote, the courtyard formed a central focal point for the activities of the household, end quote. His work outlines that the design of the courtyard itself was laid out intentionally to emphasize social inequality. Matthew, what were the specific design aspects of a courtyard that was used to make a social statement by the property owner? Well, imagine, Cassidy, that you and I are walking into a 16th century courtyard. What we would see in front of us, or possibly to the side, would be the main door into the Great Hall. And we would instantly know what we're seeing, and that would help us orient our experience of the whole courtyard. Because as contemporaries, we would know that that's the door into the lower end, and that Entering through that door, we would then turn in one direction or another to face the upper end of the hall. And we would know which direction that was because the upper end of the hall was almost always marked by a large window, very often a bay window, uh, to to mark that upper end. So, and once you've got that element in place, there's a kind of cultural grammar by which you know where all the other elements of the building are going to be. So beyond that upper end of the hall, there will be the great chamber. There will be the private lodgings of the uh, the master and his wife. At the lower end of the hall will be a service area, buttery, pantry, and beyond that, the kitchen. So the whole courtyard would be laid out in a uh, a wraparound structure, a linear wraparound structure. And once you've identified that central element, you know where all the other all the other parts are. 
In a previous episode of That Shakespeare Life, we've talked about the importance of a great chamber in stately homes. This great chamber being seen as the place to entertain or to even flaunt your wealth as a property owner. Matthew, where was the great chamber located inside a 16th century home? I know you said you go through the door and you're in it, but explain for us what attributes did the great chamber include, which made it this establishment of social standing? It's a little more complex in the sense that there is a great hall and then there is a private withdrawing chamber beyond. And when 16th century commentators talked about the great chamber, they were more often not referring to that chamber beyond. So the first point about it is in relation vis-a-vis to, to, is in relation to the hall. The hall traditionally in the Middle Ages was used for everyday life, for uh, the main meal of the day, and it was also used in upper-class households for court functions and so forth. But by the 1500s, the Great Hall was being used less and less, and increasingly only for ceremonial or only for large-scale entertainment. And increasingly, if you were entertaining your social equals, you would invite them into the chamber beyond the hall. So this is the this is the room that's in in some um, accounts is, is called the great chamber. And a lot of contemporary social commentators actually complain about this. They say that um, it used to be the case the Lord would offer entertainment to everybody, uh, food, hospitality to everybody in the great hall. But now they prefer, prefer to dine by themselves in in the chamber beyond. So being invited into that chamber beyond would be an important social state. It would be a statement that the Lord or the Lord's family regard you of being of sufficient social status to make it, if you like, into the next stage of the building. In addition to a great house with appropriate decorations, the land on which the property resided also held a social function. Matthew, in Shakespeare's lifetime, was it a sign of social prominence or high social status for a person to own substantial acreage? Yes, absolutely. Land in some ways was the basic currency of social status. When uh, a merchant um, became wealthy, when a merchant family uh, uh, prospered, uh, very often the the, the thing they would attempt to do as soon as possible was to buy themselves a landed estate. So land was a basic social currency as well as an economic resource. As students of Shakespeare's lifetime, we often see the phrase of certain status to describe limitations on clothes, housing, and other material realities for various people. Social status and one's place in society is taken as an outside force that's inflicted upon someone at birth. That person then left to deal with their lot in life from then on. Matthew's research writes of a man named Richard Clement who fought to win a property called Moat. Matthew, what does Clement's story tell us about the flexibility of a person's status in Shakespeare's lifetime. Item Moat is a really interesting building, partly because it's old. But one of the things that happens there is that um, Clement actually buys it. He buys it in the in the um, in, in the 1530s. Himself, actually, having um, uh, well, he was raised in Sussex, but spent a lot of time in Northamptonshire and moved back. So here's this ancient building, this ancient centre of hospitality and lineage. But it's actually a place that um, that Clement has built. Uh, Clement rather has has purchased. So it's a a microcosm, if you like, of many of these tensions in the 16th century between a traditional conception of status on the one hand, which is about ancient lineages and about ancestry, and on the other hand, some of the emergent market forces that you see in those societies. 
So if we think about Clement in particular, there are are really three things that Clement does to foster his social status. The first is he marries well. He marries twice, and in for the elites in the 15th century, uh, a marriage to uh, a women women come with dowries. So each time he 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 acquires um, substantial amounts of wealth. Secondly, he serves the king. So service to the king or more broadly to the state, again, is an important way to build up your social position. And thirdly, he uses and deploys violence. He gets basically an organized gang together of of a couple of hundred um, of of his followers to to, to intimidate, basically to intimidate his rivals within the Kent landscape around around item moat. So here here are these three things then, um, violence, service to the state, and and marriage, which are classic uh, strategies from the 1500s. Clement's story, while telling about social order, precedes Shakespeare's lifetime. In his more recent book, English Houses 1300 to 1800, Matthew writes about a man contemporary to Shakespeare named Phelps, whose building also speaks to social order. Matthew, were the rules about displaying your social status through your home and architecture the same during Shakespeare's lifetime as what we see with Richard Clement? And how does Phelps' building choices reflect what the social order had become for Shakespeare? Things are changing subtly. This is this is two generations later. Phelps builds Montacute House around about in the 1590s. Um, it's usually dates to 1599, the same year that, that Shakespeare is, is, is writing Hamlet and, and various various other plays. It's changing subtly, in particular with respect to the use of violence. Traditional story that's told about the 1500s is about the rise in the power of the state. Well, there's a commensurate decline in the use of violence by great barons or great great families. So Phyllis was more or less peaceful, at least in terms of his own use of violence. Of course, as a justice of the peace, as a leader of the House of Commons, he was somebody who, who was who was who was uh, used to deploying state-sanctioned violence on a on, on an everyday basis. To turn to Montacute um, uh, specifically, uh, Montacute is a very typical example of a great house built at the end of the 16th century during Shakespeare's lifetime. And it's typical in the sense that it has an, an external appearance which is symmetrical. It has two wings, one balancing the other. It has a central entryway. Above the central entryway, you have a series of busts of classical figures, statues of classical figures. So it's symmetrical and it's displaying many of the elements of the Renaissance. But the plan itself is much more traditional and, again, would have been recognised by anybody who had been around item moat. Inside, you go through that door and you find, again, it's actually a door into the lower end of a hall. Uh, There is the Great Hall and then there is the Great Chamber beyond and so on. So you have here a combination of old and new that's very, very typical of architecture of the time and which plays into Phelps's own ideas of social status because Phelps himself is somebody who, who wants to present himself as from an older lineage, is, is looking to inspire deference and part of the way to do this is to use these relatively traditional forms of architecture. 
If the social status of the peasantry was not set from birth such that anyone could become aristocratic with the right connections, as indeed we see Shakespeare himself accomplish when he rises in the ranks of social standing to become a gentleman during his life, Matthew, I wonder how the elite of society, even royalty, felt about this new social flexibility. Did the aristocracy of England feel threatened in their position by the rise of the peasants? And if so, do we see a trend of compensation through elaborate architecture or grand building developments that literally show off high status on their homes or patronages? The short answer is yes. <laughs> the longer answer is more complex. I think by the time you get to the second half of the 16th century, it's it's not appropriate to use the term peasant anymore. Um, you're dealing here with tenant farmers who are producing as much for the market as they are for their own and subsistence. And certainly in the upper end of, of tenant farmers, you're dealing with people who, who are very, very prosperous and within whom, uh, whose ranks some Shakespeare himself, at least in his youth, would have felt would have felt quite, quite comfortable. I see a lot of the cultural outputs of this time, for example, the works of Shakespeare himself, as about anxiety about social mobility and anxiety about changes in social class that are going on. The constant ridicule and the constant demarcation of, of the lower orders in Shakespeare is, in my mind, double-edged. Um, Shakespeare is asserting that there is a certain kind of social order. Of course, he is literally putting that on stage. He's literally emphasising it over and over again in a way that many, many scholars have seen as about cultural anxiety. So the upper social orders were certainly anxious about what was going on around them. Writers of the time talk over and over again about the loss of the old ways. And part of what they mean by the loss of the old ways are loss of these old systems of deference and so on. This, of course, is very, very con controversial in, in social history. and Many people would disagree with me. I would point to the fact that the generation after Shakespeare's death, this is a society that cut off the king's head. And so for me, it is one that is framed by this very, very profound undertow of social change and of social conflict. From the social mobility of someone like Shakespeare to the elaborate decorations of the aristocracy that feel almost farcical in their extravagance, it seems there is some blurring of the lines between social layers in Shakespeare's lifetime. Matthew, what were the rungs of the social ladder for Shakespeare's life? You mentioned that he's mocking the lower order. Are there clearly defined social stations that we can name and recognize? A lot of contemporaries would say yes. So they would point to the king, the aristocracy. They would point to the class of the gentry below that. They would point below that to yeomen and husbandmen and so on down the run to, to landless, to, uh, landless labourers. That's what an idealised scheme would look like. But in practice, people's understanding of social status was a little bit more fluid and a little more ambiguous than that. It wasn't quite status. It wasn't quite class. A lot of the social historians have talked about there being a language of sorts. So people would talk about the middling sort or the upper sort and, and so forth. So um, there is a, a, a formal run, a uh, set of runs. It doesn't always correspond to the way people are thinking in practice. And there are uh, several exceptions to those runs or several ambiguities. The first is the urban middle classes, the urban bourgeoisie, who never quite fit into this conception of society. This is a, a, a conception of society that's based around the manor and around the countryside. So quite where 
socially middling urban people fit into it isn't quite clear. The second ambiguity is, of course, the position of women. This is a patriarchal society, and again, one in which there's a formal code of, of, of male dominance. But again, in reality, the reality is often very, very different to that. When someone like Shakespeare or Richard Clement changed their social status through marriage or land ownership or connections within the royal court, did that person assume new rules for what they could wear and eat and do under the Elizabethan sumptuary laws? Yes, but it would be a more a less formal and a more everyday practice than perhaps that implies. And the thing to remember about the sumptuary laws is that the sumptuary laws were good to think with, but not so good to practice with. There are very, very few actual prosecutions brought under the sumptuary laws. They're clearly an idealised scheme, and it's clearly also a scheme that is in, in, at least partly ignored in practice. So somebody like Phillips or Clement wouldn't uh, say, okay, t- uh, you know, I've got this new source of wealth, I'm now going to behave in, in this new way. Rather than an everyday basis, their, their language would change, their bodily demeanour would be modified. Um, there'd be a whole series of everyday and very subtle negotiations, not so dissimilar to the way that social class is negotiated today. Matthew writes that in 1567, a house named Longleaf burned down from a great fire. There are other instances of entire houses, like the estate of Robert Cecil, being torn down intentionally by new owners who wanted to rebuild in the style of the day. Matthew, what were the important features for a socially acceptable home in the late 16th, early 17th century? And why was it so important to make these kinds of social projections? Is this kind of a status symbol for Shakespeare's lifetime? Is that different than what we think of when we associate? affluence with brands like Porsche or Gucci today? I would say that the the best analogy is actually a dramaturgical one. It's that you need a house because it's a stage setting. It's a stage setting against which you act out or you play out your own conception of who you are and what your your own social status is. So for a high status home at the end of the 16th century, you need a great hall. You may not actually be using the great hall very much, but it's important because it shows off to the world that you're prepared to play the role of a lord. You will give out hospitality. You will sit at the upper end of the hall. Other people would stand when you come in and, and so forth. Beyond that, the great chamber. And beyond that, also, of course, the kitchens. One of the most important ways to show off social status is through the deployment of hospitality, through the deployment of, of large quantities of food to your followers, to your tenants. And so you have to show that you're able to do that. So, um, and then beyond that, of course, you need a great gate. There has to be a very complex and elaborate system for getting in and out of this uh, house. Because as today, the way you show hospitality is by opening your door to people. And that's the point at which you you impress them in in particular ways. So most of these structures have pretty elaborate gate structures um, as well. And increasingly, as you get into the the 1500s and the 1600s, you need a larger and larger estate around the house. You need formal gardens, perhaps after the Italian manner. You need gardens through which you can walk, you can show off your civility, you can show off your great good breeding, and of course a long gallery from which you can look down on the estate. 
Matthew identifies a surprising bit of evidence for the extremes to which people would go for the maintenance of social order when he writes, quote, documentary historians have commented that society during this period was integrated by such common principles running across boundaries of class, servicing to brace the social ladder at all levels. One example of this phenomenon is child exchange between households. Matthew, I was really shocked to read this. I didn't know this was a thing. What is child exchange and why do you identify it as a phenomenon of social class? Commentators from other European countries visiting England in the uh, 1500s and 1600s were shocked also. So it's not just you, Cassidy. The institution of service was a complex one. And, and in part, it goes back to this complexity of social status, because status in part was an age grade. Your servants would tend to be younger. A child might well expect at about the age of 14 or 15 to be hired out to another household, possibly one of the same social status, but possibly one a little bit further up. So if you were from a husbandman household, you might well get hired into service into in a yeoman household. If you were the son or daughter of a yeoman, you might well uh, go into service in, with the local gentry family and so on. So this is what child exchange was about. And indeed, um, foreign commentators commented this just showed how callous the English were towards towards their children. But it did form an important age grade. It performed, it, it created this, this important interim status in between being a child on the one hand and being an adult on the other. And it tended to feed in as well to age of marriage, because as a servant working in somebody else's household, you would save up. And only after you had saved up a certain amount or when you were a person of certain means, only then were you able to marry. So the age of marriage in early modern England has been considered by many people as relatively late. It's the mid-20s. And it's part of the fun it's part it's a function in part of this system. I know we would love to explore this topic further and find out more about social order and architecture in Shakespeare's lifetime. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, there's, there's an infinity of, of books on this topic, many written by people far more erudite than me. I'll just pick out three, which are really good places to start. Keith Wrightson's A Social History of England, 1500 to 1750, is a volume. It's a really good collection of, of, of different essays on different aspects of social history. I'd also recommend Susan Amerson's book, An Ordered Society, Gender and Class in Early Modern England. I like that one because Amerson does a really good job of drilling out the intersection between class on the one hand or status on the one hand and uh, the patriarchal social order on the other hand. She does a really good job of showing how, how women didn't necessarily accept the role that they were assigned by traditional male commentators within, within that. Similar reasons, uh, and, and a real, real favourite book of mine is, is David Cressy's Agnes Bowker's Cat, Trans Travesties and Transgressions in Tudor and Stuart England. Because what he does in that, he takes a series of stories, mostly from court records within provincial early modern England, and shows how they relate to a particular underlying cultural norms. So, for example, he has a really interesting discussion of childbirth and how, because uh, a bit of elements of slanderous gossip 
were repeated by women sitting around the bed uh, while um, uh, while a woman was, was was giving birth. You can use this in the way into thinking about discourse in the period, about the nature of slander, about the nature of gossip, and about the nature of cultural categories. So Cressy does a really good job of bringing out how um, superficially this, this society is familiar to us, but in reality had cultural norms and cultural categories very, very different to our own. Those are excellent resources, and we will link to all three of these in the show notes for today's episode, so make sure you go there to find those. Matthew, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Well, the first thing I would do is specify which Bible, because I would want to take the King James Bible. I'm not particularly religious personally, but that is such an important book in terms of understanding 17th century history. The the language in it, the way that book goes on to be such an important cultural resource for people of all social classes who read uh, 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 over the course of the 17th century is really important. So I'm going to insist on a King James Bible. That's the the first thing. I would take any really good historical atlas of the world. I love looking at maps. As an, as, and as an archaeologist, I spent a lot of time looking at maps, thinking about spatial data and how it works. And I think that I would need a book that I would want to come back to again and again. And whenever I open it up, we'd see something slightly different each time. So historical atlas of the world in around about AD 1600 would, would fit the bill perfectly. I think you would be well set up on your deserted island with those selections. We'll link to some of these options in the show notes as well. Matthew, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I am trying to write a book that works backwards. I call it my backwards book. It starts in the American colonies in uh, 17th century Massachusetts, 17th century Virginia, and says, well, what were the origins of these people? Where did they come from? What are the cultural patterns that we can see in the old country that we can trace back? So the second part of the book goes back to Shakespeare's England and goes back then in turn into the Middle Ages. And so I want to work the book backwards, really all the way back to the Romans and perhaps beyond. This is a big book and it's going to take me a long time to write. And progress has been slow this year, um, in part because of the problems um, of the lockdown. But that's what I'm working on at the moment. And I may or may not manage to finish it. Well, it sounds very exciting, and I know we'll look forward to seeing that when it is finished, and hopefully we can have you back to talk about it when it's written. I would love to do that, Cassidy. I'd love to come back anytime. Thank you so much, Matthew, for being here and sharing with us this history into Shakespeare's life. I really appreciate you being here. It's been a pleasure. As always, the show notes are packed with even more history. There you will find links to all of the resources Matthew shares in today's episode, along with images and paintings that show you what the architecture we talk about today actually looks like. Today's episode also includes a free printable diagram showing each social class and their order from bottom to top. So be sure to grab that while you're over there. Find all of this history and more packed into the show notes for today at castycash.com slash episode 157. That's castycash.com slash EP 157.
Don't forget that the video version of our show is now streaming on our YouTube channel. You can find that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you would like to have all the video versions of our show, along with documentaries, animated plays, and more, be sure to check out the streaming app for that Shakespeare life. Find that at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. Don't forget that the video version of our show is streaming right now on YouTube completely free. You can watch that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash. And if you like video content for our show, then make sure you check out the digital streaming app for that Shakespeare life. We have animated plays, bonus interviews, documentaries, and more all packed into the membership area for our show. Members get the digital streaming app along with monthly history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare. Join us inside as we cook, play, and create our way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more and download that app at CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's CassidyCash.com slash experience. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.